It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino at chumbacasino.com. Choose from hundreds of social casino-style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. Good evening. And blessings, and welcome to another installment of the Gist of Freedom is Faith. This show is produced by acclaimed historian, educator, and author Leslie Gist, and serves as our weekly live online discussion to celebrate the African American experience by honoring all the people, past and present, black and white, who, with faith and focus, are preserving our rich history through literature, the arts, the skilled trades, and the humanities. We thank you for joining us tonight. And we'd love you to be a part of tonight's discussion by calling in with your comments or questions to 347-324-5552. Good, uh, good evening, everyone. My name is Preston Washington. I'm your host this evening for the Gist of Freedom. I'm a genealogist located here in Kansas City, Missouri, where I am the president of the Midwest Afro-American Genealogical Interest Coalition. Our guest joining us tonight is Keith Bochamp, filmmaker, film producer, here to talk about the premiere of his latest effort, The Injustice Files, Hood of Suspicion, which premieres on IDTV, Investigation Discovery Television. And again, that premieres February 13th this Wednesday, 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Um, he's going to take up the subject of certain defense laws, modern-day uh, defense laws, etc., such as Stand Your Ground that came out in the Trayvon Martin case in Florida, the Castle Doctrine, which uh, states that no one has the duty to retreat when one's home is under attack. Um, he will be talking to us in reference to um, three cases and any other cases that he would like to discuss. That's the Robin Tolan case out of Bel Air, Texas, Rekia Boyd case in Chicago, Illinois, and a case there in Kennesaw, Georgia, involving a gentleman by the name of John McNeil. And uh, also, before we get started, I'd like to... Uh, audience to know to join us uh, this Saturday, February the 16th, uh, for the Malcolm X Film Festival, which you can get an insight into at www.malcolmxfilmfestival.com, where there will be a premiere of the uh, documentary Slavery by Another Name. Uh, by filmmaker Sam Pollard. Our own Leslie Guest will be one of your hosts, uh, in addition to Ilyasa Al-Shabazz, the daughter of Malcolm X, and Dr. Walter Greeson, along with Stephanie Wilson, Michael Cord, uh, Roy Paul, Chet White. Uh, Michael Cord is an activist attorney, that will be part of that distinguished group that will be involved in um, a discussion of the film uh, Slavery by Another Name. And hopefully Mr. Bochamp will also uh, be present. Are you with us now, Mr. Bochamp? Are you there, Keith? Okay. Keith hasn't joined us as yet. Yes, I'm here. (laughs) Oh, you're there. Yes, Welcome I am, sir. Welcome to the program. I'm so glad that you could take time out of your busy schedule with all that's going on uh, with your premiere coming up uh, February the 13th, this Wednesday, on IDTV, mm-hmm. uh, Investigation Discovery Television. Yes, sir. Uh, tell the audience how they can get to that. 
IVTV. Is that part of a channel? Uh, Actually, um, Investigation Discovery is a network. It's under the umbrella of Discovery Channel. It's their oh. Prime TV channel. And actually, it's one of the, the, the fastest-growing networks in the country right now. Okay. And tell us how long you've been involved with the Injustice Files and some of the previous cases that you've presented. And did I have it right on the three cases that will be focused on uh, come February 13th? Yes, sir, you did. But um, the Injustice Files was a creation that came out of my um, initial work with Emmett Till, the untold story of Emmett Till, which I would help prompt the federal government to reopen the case. And, um, and from there, I began working with the federal authorities with the Civil Rights Cold Case Initiative that started off the heels of the reopening of the Till case and been producing TV series to bring awareness to the unsolved civil rights murders, setting up a justice-seeking atmosphere that will allow witnesses who have information to come forward. So, um, you know, the Injustice Files was a creation out of my relationship with the federal authorities and just trying to land and and provide a platform for the voiceless. Um, we all understand that, you know, in, the, in terms of our, in our community, we realize that in our community when you talk about um, injustices and things of that nature, a lot of this, this information never gets, gets out to mainstream media or the mainstream media won't touch it. So I would like to say that my show has filled that void in a way, and uh, I've been truly blessed by having um, the, the network behind me and um, the investigation discovery, uh, being able to de- um, create a platform for those who, cannot, who, who can no longer speak for themselves. So the first season, um, if anyone, if your listeners recall, was based on unsolved civil rights murder cases. And, of course, we dealt with three civil rights murders in, in our first season, and we moved from there to more of the modern modern injustices. Last year we tackled um, the horrific subject matter of mysterious hanging deaths of African-American men that's been happening in recent years that echoes traditional lynchings. And these are cases that have been ruled suicides by um, members of the local authorities um, and leaving the families behind with the stress of trying to figure out why their loved ones committed suicides when they never believe um, that you know their loved ones would commit such act. Mm-hmm. This year, which is interesting enough, um, I would have to say it was a response to the Trayvon Martin tragedy. All of us who've heard about the Trayvon Martin case, and and you know, especially when it took place, we were all shocked and frustrated that something like this could happen and continue to happen because it's happened before. And I wanted to take an honest look at racial profiling and self-defense laws that discriminates against African Americans. I say that because. When you look at the two major elements of the Trayvon Martin tragedy, you talk about the issue of racial profiling and, of course, stand your ground. And, you know, statistically, when you take a look at stand your ground laws, those who are of African descent and those who are people of color are very unsuccessful when that law is presented to be used for their defense in court. So I decided to choose three significant cases that I felt encompass racial profiling and, of course, stand your ground self-defense laws. And that was the case of Robbie Tolan that took place in Bear Texas, Rekia Boyd that took place in Chicago, Illinois, and, of course, John McNeil's case that took place in, in Kennesaw, Georgia. So which one of those are you going to start with this first? Okay. <laughs> well, let's start with let's start with Robbie Tolan. Um this is Robbie Tolan, um of course his case may sound familiar to some of your listeners because his father, Bobby Tolan, uh was a famous 
baseball player, Major League Baseball player, and this case took place in 2008. When it took place at the time, it, it got um, a little bit of media coverage, but no one has actually delved into the case itself. But Robbie Tolan, on December 31st, 2008, uh, which is, of course, New Year's Eve, he was out with a cousin, and um, they had just come, went out, they have, I'm sorry, they had just gone out celebrating the new year coming in, and they decided on their way home to stop at a fast food food joint where they picked up the food and they traveled into their community. Now, the area where Robbie Tolan and his family lived was a place called Bear Lair, Texas, the city of Bear Lair. And Bear Lair is a prominent, affluent white community, predominantly white, in which his family, he and his family lived for at least 15 years. So as they, as he was going home, an officer noticed he and his cousin in, a, in, his, in their SUV, and the officer followed them. And as they went into the neighborhood, the officer then punched in the license plate number to check the license and, of course, to see if, it, if the car was stolen. Uh-huh. And he ended up getting a um, what we call a notification saying that um, our alert saying that the car was a stolen vehicle used cautious or it was something to the extent that the car was um, possibly a stolen vehicle used caution. The officer then in turn uh, followed the, followed Robbie and his cousin as they pull into his driveway. And as Robbie and the cousin got out of the exit of their vehicle, the officer got out and held them at gunpoint and made the statement that they were in the stolen car. They need to stay with him. What ended up happening, his parents, Rob, the Tolan family, heard the commotion going outside. His parents came out. They were wearing actually um, um, pajamas at the time and they came out the house and they were trying to explain to the officer that they had it wrong that in fact Robbie lived at the house the car was their car it wasn't a stolen vehicle whatsoever a responding officer came another responding officer came on the scene for backup and within 30 seconds this officer jumps out of his vehicle runs up the driveway pushes Robbie Tolan's mother against a garage door while Robbie is held at gunpoint by the all other officer who actually had ordered them on the ground. And when Robbie, of course, hears his mother being slammed against the garage door, he responds to the officer and says, don't you be doing that to my mother. The officer then takes out his gun and shoots Robbie right there on the spot. The thing is, is that Robbie was able to, he survived, but his career as a major league, or his future career as a major league baseball player was cut short. What adds at an insult to injury is that the case actually went forward to court because Robbie, of course, and his family wanted to press charges against the police officer. And what ended up happening, the officer was actually acquitted of all the charges. That officer still works for the Bel Air Police Department today. And the reason why that case was chosen is because I felt it was a clear case of racial profiling. What's so bad about this case, Preston, is the fact that the officer who initially stopped Robbie and his cousin made a mistake by typing the wrong license plate number in the computer. And that's how Robbie ended up being shot that that night. And of and course I huh? Go ahead, I'm sorry, go ahead. And of course I felt strongly in which everyone who's know who knows this case would tell you that this is a clear cut of racial profiling. Yeah, even so that even so much that when the parents came out and claimed ownership of the car, they were st- they were ignored. They were ignored, and you know it, it's just tragic that something like this could occur in a affluent neighborhood 
where you have professionals, you know, a family of professionals having to deal with the issue like that. It kind of actually puts a, you know, mic, not a microscope, what I'm trying to say. It kind of like, it, it's kind of like a wake-up, it's kind of like a wake-up call because of the fact that normally when you hear about racial profiling cases, you normally hear about something like this taking place in in a neighborhood that's less fortunate. Here you had a family of professionals who could not stop their son from being a victim to racial profiling. Mm. What makes yeah. this case even more special is that normally when you talk about cases of racial profiling, the victims are dead. Robbie survived, Robbie and now survived. he's telling his story. So... Um Bobby Tolan, they didn't recognize Bobby Tolan. I mean, it seems like, uh, recall, he had a, about a 13, 14-year career in Major League Baseball. Yes, Played sir. Played teams, including uh, uh, the team here in my state, the St. Louis Cardinals, uh, Philadelphia Phillies. I think he played for Pittsburgh and even a year in Japan. Uh-huh. You would think that since he was in that area, he would have been known. Did the officers ever make... Um, any acknowledgement that they knew who he was or recognized well, you know, him later on? I'm glad you asked that because the community of Bel Air, Texas, it's a small, affluent community, especially in the neighborhood in which the officers were patrolling. And there were not, there's not a lot of black families in there. I think it's only like um, 1%, I was told, of black families that live in in this particular area. But you know, Bobby is known in that area and even in Houston, but he's known in Bel Air as well as as Robbie because Robbie was a star baseball player on the high school baseball team. So, you know, everyone was truly shocked, and, and, and speaking to the parents, of course, they were truly shocked that something like this could actually happen at their home, a home in which they lived in for over 15 years. Wow. So it makes you wonder if racists really discriminate or do they make distinctions? Exactly. Exactly. Um, I'm reminded of the case of Louis Gates uh, yes. walking in the front door of his own house. Yes, yes, yes. And, uh, the uh, They didn't discriminate, but the distinction is, is based on his color. Exactly. Um, and, you know, that's that's one of the major issues why we wanted to produce a show like of this nature to really address the issue of racial profiling and trying to figure out how we can make sure that these type of acts doesn't happen, don't happen again. You know, the problem is is that, you know, when you say racial profiling, we've got to remember that racial profiling is a police term. And, um, you know, if, if we have to start retraining our policemen and, you know, and, and really talk about this issue, I think it's great to bring it up and bring it up out to the open forum so these things can be acknowledged and addressed. You know, it's the same tragic, tragic thing that happened with Trayvon Martin, although, you know, Zimmerman, if you, if you, you know, if, if, if you understand the case, Although Zimmerman was the person who stopped Rob, Rob, I'm not Robbie, but Trayvon Martin, and you believe it to be racial profiling, I mean, in terms of Zimmerman, he has a right to do it. It's not illegal for him to racial profile, but it's illegal for police to do it. And no one was held accountable for this particular case, this, this case. And now we're hoping that we will raise enough red flags that something could happen to this officer who still works in the police force in that community. Right. Keith, do you think that some of our opponents, blacks, think that they are immune <laughs> to this type of behavior, and that they, too, have to get rid of their false sense of security? That this yes. just doesn't happen to our less fortunate brothers out there? I completely agree with you, Preston, because, you know, not that the family, the Tolan family or that way is, is, you know, that way in terms of feeling that nothing can happen to them because of what the, what they have and what they, you know, own and and so on. You know, it's just a shocking truth that all of us are vulnerable 
you know, when it comes to this issue of racial profiling. You have all the money in the world, but, you you know, things still would happen. And, you know, that's what was so shocking about this particular case, that here you have this affluent professional family who lived mm-hmm. in a community for a long period of time, and something like this could happen, and they can't stop it. You know, before we move on to the next cases, uh, this racial profiling seems to have uh, reached its apex in what's going on out there in California. Have yes. you been keeping up with that? Any thoughts on it? Yes, I have, and and it's unfortunate that something when something like this takes place, you know, it, it kind of makes it harder for you know all the other black men and and you know and people of African descent out there um, because the first thing the police are going to look for, uh, or per, first thing the police is going to do is profile. So they, I'm sure they're pulling a lot of people over right now trying to find find um, this guy. So, you know, it's just at some point we have to realize how much is helping and how much is not helping. Who are the ones who are suffering the most from this? And I don't think we really address this issue until it hits home individually to us. I think collectively as a people we need to put our hands up and say enough is enough. We have to figure out another way of handling things. But then you're dealing with also pressing the problem of racial profiling in our own community. Blacks racially profile as well. I've dealt with some racial profiling cases. Um, well, I shouldn't say racial profiling cases, but we were in Homer, Louisiana, doing a, a conducting our own sting and investigation in that community. And in Homer, you know, it's not the white officers who are actually racially profiling; it's the black officers. So yeah. you know, we have that self hate, that self hatred, that is in us that we somehow need to get that away. <laughs> you know, we need to take that away from us because we get caught up in the in the boys in blue system and we totally lose, you know, our sense of of humanness. So, you know, I'm just hoping that this show will begin to start a cleansing dialogue of acknowledgement and and really tackling this issue. And, you know, I'm excited to be able to give a platform to do something like this. Yeah, it's really a, a timely. And speaking of the brother there in California, was definitely under a false sense of security, uh, thinking that he could blow the whistle on a white female cop. Yeah. So a white special needs victim. <laughs> and really thought he was going to get the support of the L.A. Police Department. <laughs> You know, um, it's just it's just sad, man. It's sad that we continue to go down this road. You know, I don't think anyone that is outside of us, when in terms of of not of African descent, um, truly understands what we deal with as black males in our everyday lives. When we walk out of the house, we have that question mark in our head: What's going to happen today? When a police officer walks by you, they not many people but us have that feeling of, of certainness, you know, that nervousness that comes over you when police walks walks by. And that's not a place that's not a way to live. And I, if if it's true, if the facts are true about this brother that is in Californian I mean, that is in California, and he was dealing with a a racial system on the inside. I mean, it's just terrible that things have come to this point where we cannot address these issues before things escalate. But that's the good old boys in blue. I mean, and and you have other organizations as well that is not of law enforcement. It's even worse. So, you know, we have to figure out a way to – to when we go through a negative experience like that, how to really handle a situation the best way we can, but without violence and things of that nature. Because now, I mean, it's open season on the brothers down there now. We don't know what's going to happen. Yeah, I saw on Facebook that uh, they posted a picture of that brother along with LL Cool J and said that LL now stands for laying low. Because there's oh, a wow. Uh, wow. resemblance between the two in L.A. or L.L. Cool J, of course, is in Los Angeles area right now. Yes. Uh, before we move on, I want to remind our listeners that they can 
call in and uh, join in this conversation if they have questions or comments at 347-324-5552. Our guest is Keith Bochamp, filmmaker, here discussing the premiere of his show, The Injustice Files, Hood of Suspicion, which pre- uh, premieres uh, this Wednesday, February the yes, 1st, sir. on the IDTV, or Investigative Discovery Channel. Um, now, yeah, just before we go on, I, this um, this guy in California is, is turning up a lot of, of talk. And some people are liking him to Nat Turner or <laughs> modern-day Django. Uh, yes. What's the state of folks who go down that path? You know, it, you know, it's interesting that everyone is saying that because, he, <laughs> in fact, he could be a modern-day Django or Nat Turner. I don't understand what the brother is going through until more information comes out. I will feel even more, you know, at that time I'll feel comfortable really speaking out about it. But if it's true what they're saying, I have to ask the question, what do you, I mean, what do you expect when someone has his back against the corner? I mean, against the wall. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's just unfortunate, like I said, that we're still dealing with these type of transgenerational issues in today's generation. And until we start putting our hands on everything and really acknowledging the problems and really addressing them, they're going to continue to surface and going to continue to happen. It's unfortunate that we're living in a time where we just ushered in our black president, America's first black president, a second term, and we're still dealing with these type of issues. I'm not in, uh, under the illusion that we live on a, under a post-racial society, but surely after all that we've gone through in the last 50 and 60 years, you would think we would have, we would have gotten better as a people collectively, not just black, but collectively in white, in, as a white or uh, black or you know any other nationality and race. Yeah, if you notice how they've refused to call this guy out in California, if anybody out there can remember his name, call in and let us know. Uh, they're refusing to call him crazy. Uh, <laughs> and immediately the shooter there in Newton in the grade school killings was immediately labeled as crazy. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, that's true. That's true. But now that, you know, this brother is saying is I don't know what, according to the media. Yeah, I mean... The point is, is that I mean, I, I, when you look at his background, and I know they they found they took a look at his background. He, you know, he was a stand-up guy, citizen in the community. So I don't think they really expected for something like this to take place because he doesn't fit the profile. But you know, as I said again, it's unfortunate that violence have to come into existence or, or come to you know happen in order for people to listen. So when are we going to step around that issue? When are we going to not step around the issue, but when are we going to deal with the social issue that is causing this problem and really address it where you don't have to fall back on violence? And as I said, it's, it's like somebody with his back against the wall. Mm-hmm. And they trained him. I mean, he's a trained, Exactly. Uh, <laughs> That's the thing. They trained him. Police department trained. Wow. Um, how do you see this ending? How do you think that's going to come out? You know, you know, I, 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 you know, I don't know. I just, you know, I, you know, if the brother turns himself, turns himself in, or he even tries to turn himself in, just on his own, I, I don't believe that he would be, he would survive. I mean, he's like I said, it's open season on him now. Yeah. Um, I guess I would have to agree with the press, with you know, with. He needs to reach out to members of the press or, or something like that in order to somehow turn himself in. Um, I just hope the brother hadn't, you know, just you know knocked himself off already. And you know, I think I feel I, I kind of feel that's what has taken place and why they can't find him right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, apparently the uh, LAPD. Killed three people trying to get him, and uh, do you think some of this is going to be featured on your injustice show in the future? 
That's quite. I didn't even hear about that, Preston. I would take a. I would love to take a look at that and see if that's that's an, uh, a chance to really address this issue a little bit further. You well, know, I'm hoping. And, I'm hoping he's taken alive so that he can talk and there can be some investigation mm-hmm. uh, to find out, uh, you know, what what the deeper motivation was. Exactly. Uh, for him doing what he allegedly did. Yeah. None of that's uh, uh, proven yet. Okay, so let's get back to our other cases that are going to be featured on your upcoming show. Who are we going to start with, Rakir or John? Yeah, I'll go down the list. Rakir Boyd is the second case of what I believe to be racial profiling going wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, her case actually happened in March of last year, um, practically um, less than a month after this Trayvon Martin tragedy. And unfortunately, at the time, because of all the awareness and the media attention surrounding the Trayvon Martin story, um, Rakia's never seen anything, no type of press, really. It was only a local issue. And I can recall getting an email, um, I'm sorry, a Facebook message from a colleague in Chicago saying to me, well, Keith, you need to check out this case because now we have to worry about our black sisters. And, you know, when I took a look at the case, I I went online and I did some research and I came across a clip of Martinez Sutton, and he's the brother of Rekia Boyd. And I was just blown away how this young man was out there speaking out, wanting justice for his sister. And for those who don't know the case, let me go into it right quick. Um, Basically, Rekia Boyd was with a group of friends hanging out in Douglas Park, um, which is an area of Chicago. And as they were walking down um, one of the streets there, they were confronted. They were confronted um, by this off-duty detective, and the way he approached the, the young people, I mean the group, he basically yelled at them and said they need to keep that damn noise down. All right, but he said he didn't say it in the nice way that I said. Okay. So one of the young men in the group responded, "Hey, white boy, we don't have no drugs here. Leave us alone." So they thought they were being harassed, and when the the black when one of the men in the group said this to the off-duty detective who was white Hispanic, the officer then took out his revolver and started shooting at everyone. Rakia is hit, and of course later passed away by a stray bullet. Now. I went to the scene of the crime, and I was able to look at evidence and see clearly all the bullets that were out, laid out, how you know the shooting took place, where it took place. And I could tell you this guy was shooting to kill everybody, everybody, not just one guy. Mm-hmm. He claims that he was targeting the guy who actually made the statement to him and that he thought the guy who actually responded to him, had a gun in his hand. And the guy who, who who actually responded, he didn't have a gun. He had a telephone, a cell phone in his hand, and he mistaken that as being a gun. So um, the tragedy is that the family, we're going up on a year right now, the tragedy is the family didn't didn't even receive an apology by the Chicago Police Department. Has didn't get any restitution or settlement yet, um, and they're still fighting for justice. And it, this is just a tragic t- case of all epic proportions because the way Martinez found out was that the following day um, he was actually watching the news, and he hears this story about this young woman getting shot, not knowing that it was his sister. Oh, he didn't man. realize it was his sister until they knocked on the door. And when they approached him, they asked him, are you Martinez Sutton? And he said, yes. He said, are you Rekia Boyd's brother? 
And he said, yes. And he said, well, your sister has been shot. She was involved in the crime. So automatically, without knowing any information of what transpired that evening, his sister was already a criminal from the start. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. you know, this is some of the pain that this family had to deal with over the year. And not only that, you got you you have to understand too that this is an an atmosphere of all this black on black genocide that's going on in Chicago right now. So, oh, yeah. we don't know yeah. what you you know, that's the big issue here is that Rakia Boyd is only one of many that have died in Chicago within within the past couple of years. So, you know, I'm just hoping that this will somehow bring some awareness, even more awareness to what's happening in Chicago. I know that there's a young young lady who was just killed um, recently who actually was at the inauguration performing for the president. But I'm also hoping that Rakia Boyd's case also... Uh, somehow become a catalyst for change in that community. So you know it's 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 amazing being able to deal with these type of stories and 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 address the racial profiling issue in the Robbie Tolan case and the Rakia Boyd is pu- two pure examples of what happens when racial profiling goes wrong. In the Rakia's case, you said that you went to the scene of the crime. Are you based in Chicago? No, I'm here in New York, actually. Oh, and now have you been a victim of racial profiling? You know, um, you know, I would have to say, um, yes. Um, or there's been a couple of, and I wouldn't say racial profiling because when I think of racial profile, I think something to the extreme. But you know, there have been times when I've been pulled over here in in my vehicle because I have a Mercedes SUV. And you know, and and not harass, but question. Mm-hmm. Um, in front of my place, actually, I was pulled over, and I still drive around with a Louisiana um, license plate and Louisiana ID and um, a driver's license, and I was pulled over and questioned about um, my license, my license plate, and why I'm here. And the officer walks away. He said, I don't need your kind in this area. We don't need your kind here, something to that extent. And I couldn't believe that happened to me. Wow. And and I'm saying to myself, this guy do not even know who I am. You know, I work with the FBI. (laughs) You know, I'm doing all these type of things, you know, in the community. And he, he, he questions me in that way, and he makes a crazy comment. So I was really upset about it, and, you know, I wasn't surprised, you know, being that I'm from the Deep South, and I actually see more racism here up north than I do down south, and that's, oh, yeah. that's the crazy that's been, thing about it. Oh, yeah, that's been traditional. Um, seems like the biggest injustice out there is that police are not accountable for solving any murders, particularly black murders. Are yes. you aware of any stats on um, their arrests? for drive-bys, gang violence, any stats on uh, stop and frisk? I, I would have to say I don't really know the statistics on on those on those particular subjects, but, uh, you know, the stop and frisk thing was something that I wanted to tackle with this show. But being that we only have an hour this year, an hour special, and we're dealing with um, three um, intricate cases, I would have to say, you know, we were not able to proceed forward with the stop and frisk. Um, but it is something that's on my radar that, you know, if if it continues to escalate and happen, you know, um, I would love to address the issue because, you know, I don't know the exact statistics, but I do understand that, um, you know, basically stop and frisk do, doesn't help anyone because the majority of the people who are stopped who are African American versus the ones who are actually criminals? It just doesn't add up properly. So, mm-hmm. I understand that um, here recently the uh, police, the Police Benefit Association president, um, 
was incensed there, and I believe it was in New York City, uh, because a black cop, um, or a black, was uh, called a cop killer and was not convicted of first-degree uh, first murder. Uh, of course, they're never outraged when babies are killed uh, on their watch, mm-hmm. and then oftentimes don't even attempt to prevent or solve the crimes. I want to remind our listeners that they're listening to the Gist of Freedom. Uh, I'm your host, Preston Washington. Our guest is filmmaker Keith Bochamp, who's uh, discussing with us uh, his upcoming special on Investigation Discovery TV, a special called The Injustice Files, Hood of Suspicion, and it premieres at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on Wednesday, February the 13th, 2013. So we'll move on to our next case, which is Mr. John McNeil out of Kennesaw, Georgia. Yeah, this is a tragic te- case too, Preston. And the reason why I chose this case, because when you actually look up stand your ground laws and things of that nature, you will probably come across um, John McNeil's case. What a tragic story. Here's a a professional um, African-American man, um, very successful businessman, I have to say, who in December um, located and found their dream home. And um, he had he's had, he has a wife and two young sons, and they were moving to their dream home in Kennesaw, Georgia, and they had a problem with their builder who built the home itself. And he ended up reneging on the contract and finishing the homes before the home was purchased. So the family ended up purchasing the home. They fired the builder, and he was forbidden to come on the property. The day they were there, the, the day they were getting ready to move in, they held, let one, well, basically I said let. They had one of their sons stay at the new home while they went to their old home to gather furniture and things of that nature to move to their new home, and while the, the one of his sons were at the home, that day, while they was, I'm sorry, I'm having problems telling you this story. While okay. one of the sons was at the home that day waiting on workers, he was confronted by someone in the backyard who threatened his life. He calls his father John, and he tells his father that there's a white man in the backyard of the home who just threatened my life. He has a box cutter saying that he's going to cut me. Of course, John frantically runs to his vehicle. He goes to his son's rescue, and on his way, he calls calls 911, and he tells the operator he needs police to be at the home before he gets there because someone has just threatened his son, and he doesn't know what's happening, so he would like for officers to be there. But he also said on this call that if he if it is if it's the person that he thinks it is, he may whoop his ass. Now he had an inkling that it may be that builder that he was having problems with. Sure enough, when he pulls up in the driveway, the police hadn't arrived yet. He sees a builder on a in a on an adjacent property digging underneath his truck um, seat. Grabbing something and putting it in his pocket. In his pocket, he comes out, rushes up to John's car door, or car, and they have an altercation where their argument ensues. And the guy is advancing towards John, and John is begging him not to come forward. The guy ends up jumping towards him, rushing him quickly. John lifts the gun just in time um, and shoots. The guy um, and in underneath the jaw, and it goes straight to his head and kills him instantly. What ends up happening from there? Officers come to the scene. Um, he, of course, he realizes his son is okay. Officers comes to the scene and they interview John and his son at the substation, and they eventually let him go under the Stanya Ground Castle Dockering case because it was a clear-cut self-defense case. Mm-hmm. What made this case so interesting is that he had other eyewitnesses who came forward without him asking, but his neighbors, who are actually white, came out on his behalf and talked about the builder, the problems they were having with this builder in the past, that they felt threatened by him, 
and it was an eyewitness who saw the whole thing take place, and he explained that John was begging this guy to leave the property and not to come forward towards him or he's going to have to protect himself and shoot him. And sure enough, that happens. So they let him out. John is out. You know, um, it was a clear-cut Castle Dockering case. He was spending time with his family 247 days later, and he gets a knock at the door, and there's officers there saying that a grand jury hearing took place, that he would have to come with them because he was charged with murder. 247 days later. So John is taken from his home in front of his family. He goes to, you know, of course, his sentencing, and he is given life in prison for standing his ground. What makes things even worse is that his wife was ailing at the time. She had just uh, had cancer, and her cancer went into remission. Then it eventually came back after he was charged. She has been fighting this whole time since 2006, when since he was incarcerated, to get him out of prison because he was an innocent man. And just last week, she passed away. Oh boy! So it's it's a it's a it's a very 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 bad case that took place. And um, John is an innocent man. I tried to interview him um, in the prison, but um, guy that got my request denied. Um, the, um, the corrections facility basically said because of security and safety reasons that they would have to deny my request. And I'm like, security and safety for who? <laughs> you know, in, in their prison. In their prison. Yeah, in their so, prison. In, yes, yes. And, and and then the problem is, too, the interesting thing about this case is that it took place in Kennesaw, Georgia, where there's a city ordinance um, that every head of household must have a firearm. So it was John's legal right to own this firearm and use it in self-defense. And he had but no because duty he, to retreat. Yeah, no duty to retreat, oh. but because he is of that other color, <laughs> wow, he is serving time, life, imprisonment for standing his ground. And, you know, these are the cases that really gets under your skin. You know, having an opportunity to meet his family. Um, you know, this case, if you take a look at this case, he had, you know, everything going for, for him. Very professional man, very successful businessman, buying this huge dream home for his family, for them to live in. And then something like this take place, and, and he loses everything. Yeah, He has now I lost, huh? How's his son holding up? Well, and that's what I was getting to. Oh, he has okay. lost his his he has lost his wife. He has two sons who are young, who was very who were pro, very progressive at the time before this all happened. Who was getting ready to go to college? They had all these great perspectives on life and you know dreams and admirations of what they're gonna do, what they were gonna do when they finished school. And, you know, this is a clear case where if you ever wanted to see a family, a black family, break up, see how, what happens when the breadwinner is no longer around. And you have many of these folks in jail, probably in, many innocent men in jail right now who have families and things of that nature. And John, in John's case, you can clearly see what happens. From their dreams and admirations, they have... Got, you know, basically gotten, you know, with the wrong crowd, and now they're struggling, trying to survive, and now they have lost not only their mother, they still don't have their father. So it's it's a it's a it's a really sad case, and um, I just hope that you know our efforts that we're doing on this end, when people hear about this case, when they learn more about this case, they begin speaking out, you know, and asking that John be released because this is. A, a true tragic case when you talk about someone using a stand your ground law and had every right in the world to use it and it, and it doesn't apply for them. So um, you know it's 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 again it's it's a disturbing case. I know that when the audience would see it, 
when they see it, it's going to be a, a real tearjerker. But the frustration comes in when you have the mother, John's wife, mm-hmm. fighting all these years for the release of her husband, and all the way up to last week, she passes away. And, you know, I was fortunate to be able to interview her, um, her last interview, actually, uh, before she, you know, made the transition. But, you know, it's just it's just frustrating when you see cases like this. You, you want to bite nails and try to figure out why, why, why this is happening when all the evidence is right in front of you. Even the arresting officers, um, well, not the arresting, the de- detectives, I should say, who initially investigated the case and let John go would not sign on to go and arrest him. They did not even want to see it. There's been so many people who have spoken out publicly about this being an unjust case, but this man is still in prison. Were any of the officers uh, men of color, women of color? None at all. None of the officers, unfortunately, was men of color or women of color. No. Mm. How would um, our listeners get in touch with you if they wanted uh, to point you towards some cases that they are familiar with or? I'm glad, you, I'm glad you asked that. Um, your listeners could always reach me through um, my Facebook. I'm, I'm a real social media guy. So if you you could type my name, um, Keith Beauchamp, B-E-A-U-C-H-A, M as in Mark, P as in Paul. You can type my name in the search engine on Facebook, and you can find me, and you could friend me or send me messages that way. That would be the best way. Or you could go to my old Emmett Till website, which is E-M-M-E-T-T-T-I-L-L-Story.com. So it's EmmettTillStory.com. And you can reach me um, through email um, through that site. It goes directly to me. I answer all my emails and messages. I don't have anyone answering them for me. So I, I pay every attention to um emails and things that I receive. Are you going to be uh, free uh, this weekend to stop by and join the panel this weekend at the Sabah Center, 7 p.m.? I would would love to stop by. It's just that I have a number of venues stemming from the release of the film this week. I will be traveling um, across the country um, having private screenings in Chicago, and I have a film festival that I'm doing and and at Southern University of Baton Rouge and Baton Rouge, and then I'm headed to Florida. So it's it's a number of things that I'm doing. Uh, Black History Month is normally busy for me, but it gets even more busier when I have this show and it releases during the same time. But if I have some time this weekend, I would love to stop by. I hear you have a great panel um, going on, and I would love to to sit there and 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 learn. And uh, you're the executive director, are you not, of the Injustice Files? Yeah, I'm the executive producer and um, the host of the Injustice Files, and, you know, it's truly a blessing to have a platform like this and and be able to provide a platform for the voiceless. I want to remind our listeners we've been visiting with Keith Beauchamp. Did I get that pronunciation? You you pronounced it right. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, sir. Might have flubbed it uh, earlier. Uh, But you've been listening to uh, Keith Bolshoff, the executive producer, filmmaker for The Injustice Files, Hood of Suspicion, which premieres February the 13th on Investigation Discovery TV. Uh, before we go off the air, Keith, do you have any parting words, any advice for some of these young black males out there listening to our program tonight? You know, Preston, I live by quotes, and I, I have a quote in my head that I keep, that I, I keep in my head, and, and it continues to inspire me. It's a quote by one of our great historians, Dr. John Henry Clark, and he sta- yeah. stated that no people are truly free until they become the instrument of their own liberation. Freedom is not to be quitted from one generation to the next. Each generation must must take and maintain its freedom with its own hands. Amen. Yes, sir. 
very good advice and a very good quote. And John Henry Clark is one of my favorite people. Uh, yes. I want to thank you, Keith, uh, for joining us tonight, and maybe we can get together again uh, when you have a new project. Do you have any new projects coming out right after this? Well, next, um, you know, I will be following up with um, another Injustice Files. We're trying to pitch it now and figure out what's going to be next. I'm hoping that we'll go back to the episodes and and, and stray away a little bit from the specials because there's so many cases that I get all the time, and, and I want to pursue them, but, you know, it's very difficult when I have a, a two-hour special or a one-hour special. But um, other than that, uh, we're proceeding to move forward with, um, and I'm not sure if anybody knows this, but we're going to produce a, a feature film on the Emmett Till tragedy. And so I'm truly excited about that because I'm starting from point A again, um, you know, with a story that actually created me and my career. <laughs> so, okay, great. So um, uh, that's going to be a wonderful thing, and I want people to look out um, for news on that coming up. We're supposed to start shooting that in August of next year. Have you uh, shot that with Oprah? Or no, actually, I, I'm, I'm actually producing the film with um, with Fred Zolo, who produced Mississippi Burning and Ghost of Mississippi. And as well as Whoopi Goldberg, she's coming on as an executive producer. So the director who we, we have tapped as the director right now is Kevin Wilmot, who actually produced um, a number of movies. Um, he's best known for his, doc, his provocative documentary, CSA, Confederate States of, of America. So, um, you know, I'm truly excited to be able to tell Emma's story once again, but this time we get all the facts out so people could really understand what transpired in 1955. And I hope that that case, um, although it continues to be, his name continues to use, be used metaphorically today, even with the Trayvon Martin tragedy, I just really hope that everyone truly understands the history of the Emmett Till case. What about getting uh, the Injustice Files on Oprah's channel? You know what? It, I'm glad you said that because um, Oprah actually has, She's her network has been have I'm sorry have been re-airing <laughs> um, the the injustice files on TV is under the Discovery banner as well as ID and I know that um, last year and I'm, I think it may be coming up um, before the month is out um, she would be airing the injustice files so um, it's been on there but she has some great programming I have to say I, I just came from TCA. Uh, Television Critics Association Conference in um, in in California, and she has some great programming for thought for 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 African Americans that's coming on. So I want I, w I want to encourage people not only to look at my show and support my show, but take a look at her network and look at her at, at her current programming, her current roster that's coming out. Okay, Keith, I can't let you get away unless you say a few words about Mama Till. So, oh wow, wow! Just wow. a few words. You know, um, there's you know something that came to me today. I have to tell you, um, you know, um, there's a song that's out there, a hip hop song that 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 everyone is listening to. It's called Karate Chop, that was done by um, um, Lil Wayne out of Louisiana, as well as Future out of Atlanta. And in it, um, in that song, he taught he used Emmett Till's name in a derogatory way of of messing around with women. And um, it is just unfortunate um, that I get a call earlier today with the family being upset that something like this could happen because people are just using uh, or calling Emmett Till's name out of his name. And I think by now, being you know being that the struggles that we've gone through and you know, now a new generation is learning about Emmett Till. I can't help but wonder what Mamie Till Mobley would be saying right now. Mamie Till Mobley was one of the most prolific people I would ever, ever meet in my lifetime. Before I knew I was going to get the Emmett Till case reopened, she had already told me that I was going to do it. Here was a woman that I dealt with for nine years of my life at a time where I was trying to find direction, I was 23 years old at the time. Uh -huh. I'm 41 now. And she basically sculpted me into the person that I've become. 
And when I said earlier, you know, if it wasn't for Emmett Till, me doing that story, and, you know, I would not be a filmmaker today at all. The Emmett Till case made me a filmmaker. It made me an investigative filmmaker. It had opened doors for me, you know, that I could never imagine. The reason why I have this series right now is because of Emmett Till and, of course, the values that Mamie Till Mobley instilled in me. There were two things that she made me promise her. The first thing was, I'm sorry. No, go ahead. Go ahead, Keith. There were two things that she made me promise her before she passed away. One was to make sure I get her son's case reopened. The second thing, when I got her son's case reopened, make sure I don't forget about the voiceless, those who did not receive the recognition that Emmett Till did. Make sure I don't forget about them and make sure that I tell those stories, those stories as well. And that's what I'm doing. Did you ask about that courageous decision she made? Many times. <laughs> you know, everybody, that's a question. That's a, that's a question that always, you know, comes up. I mean, you, you cannot imagine in 1955 a woman making such a courageous decision, you know? And mm-hmm. it's, it, it's reminiscent into now where people are probably more familiar with the, the, the uh, mother of one of the victims of the Newtown incident that took place, shooting. And, you know, as she summoned up the spirit of Mamie Till Mobley to, to have and make the courageous decision herself to have an open casket funeral for the world to see what happened to her son when he was shot and killed. But in terms of Mamie, um, Mother Mobley, I mean, she was a very, very faithful woman. When Emmett Till was murdered, when she found that out, she already understood that his murder was for a bigger purpose. She already knew it. Uh-huh. It was her faith in, in 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 the Creator. It was her faith in general that helped her get through that tragic time. She had endured so much. I all the you know all the way up until I met her forty eight years later. Uh, 47 years, 46 years later, I think it was, 46 years later. All the way up to that time, Mamie Till Mobley had not stopped fighting for justice for her son. She was just as strong as she was back in 1955, and she was 30 years old at the time. So I can never imagine, even this day and time, although the Newtown um, victim's mother did, you know, had an open casket funeral, it's still hard to imagine that someone would have a courageous decision to do something like that, that like that even today, you know. And all she wanted was to show what the world did to her son, what bigotry and and the fa- and, and hatred did to her son. She often called it and referred to her son's face as a face of hatred. Mm-hmm. So you know. Even today, what I'm so proud of is being involved with the reopening of the case, being able to produce a film that I know is going to stand the test of time. But even more, you have a whole other generation that is now finding out about Emmett Till, learning about his case and wanting to know more and seeing the film and keeping that spirit alive. And that's what's true justice. You know, it's easy to fight for true justice, I mean, fight for justice in the courtroom and you don't receive it, you know, and things of that nature. But true justice is making the names of victims immortal, in a sense, so that years to come, people would know their name, people would know that these victims did not die in vain in general. Keith Beauchamp, filmmaker, executive producer, The Injustice Files. Good of Suspicion premieres February 13, 2013 on the Investigation Discovery TV. Keith, it has been more than a pleasure uh, to have you on the program tonight. I uh, commend you for the work that you're involved in um, in bringing these cases to the fore, spreading the word, getting that healing out there. Yeah. all over this world, not only in our community, um, but you're going to bring healing to the predominant 
community. And hopefully through your efforts, they will become an ally to our community. Yes. To interrupt some of this violence. We can't stop it, but surely we can interrupt it. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. And I'd like to remind our listeners uh, to tune in again with us uh, this Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time at www.blackhistoryblog.com where we will continue our discussion of the Benjamin Quarles book, Black Abolitionists. Uh, You won't want to miss that. And again, I would remind you to tune in to the Malcolm X uh, Film Festival if you're in the area of New York City. Drop by the Malcolm X Betty Shabazz Memorial and Education Center at 3940 Broadway in New York, New York. Our own Leslie Gist, uh, the producer of this show, will be in attendance and be part of the distinguished panel, along with Ilyasa Al-Shabazz, the daughter of Malcolm X, along with Dr. Walter Greeson, Stephanie Wilson, Sam Pollard, who is the uh, film's producer, uh, activist attorney Michael Coard, uh, community leaders Chet White and Roy Paul. And um, again, that's Thursday, this Thursday, the 14th, at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And um, I'll stand corrected. Miss uh, Gist is not on the panel, but she will be there. Uh, you can rest assured uh, of that. And again, drop by X filmfestival.com visit that website it's this Saturday February the 16th in New York City thank you everyone and thank you again Keith if you're still there thank you so much okay good night everybody take care bye bye Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.